rip off Morrison's fig leaf for financial crooks and save our public services. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 4th of February 2021. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robert Barwick. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Elisa. On today's report, we're going to be discussing uh, Morrison's Financial Complaints Authority, which was ushered in to actually head off real regulation of the banks. It shows how rigged the system is. And we'll talk about the outsourcing and labour hire that's destroying our public services. Before we begin, Lisa, um, a couple quick updates. Well, I'll just say, don't forget to hit oh. the like button if you enjoy today's show, because that'll get it out more widely. You can subscribe, ring the notification bell, and you'll be notified of new shows coming out, and share it as widely as you can. And now to the updates. All right, sorry for jumping the gun there. Okay, today is uh, Friday the 4th of February, as you said, which means the uh, Senate inquiry report on Sterling First is due today. So it's not out yet. We'll, we'll monitor the website closely, um, uh, jump on it as soon as it's out. We know some of the stuff that's going to be in it. There will be a clear-cut uh, call for compensation for the victims, which is a very, very important part of this. But um, the bigger issue is, will it call and demand a full overhaul of ASIC, the regulator? Because we have to, you know, what we're going to go through with, in the case of AFCA relates to all this, mm. right? But, you know, how strong are the senators going to be in this report? That's what we're waiting to see. Um, uh, second, well, I want to make an announcement uh, now because on this coming Thursday, the 10th of February, every single viewer of this show is invited to tune in to a live stream, the Citizens Party's first ever live stream on YouTube because it is the Citizens Party's 2022 election campaign launch. So what we're going to showcase is all our Senate candidates and House of Reps candidates. We've got a full Senate slate across the country. Um, uh, so you'll, you, the candidates will be introduced. We'll go through the policies, what we call our fighting platform, and there will be Q&A, right? So please, this is an opportunity to interact with the Citizens Party uh, live. Um, there will be a link below, but you can click on now and go to it and set a reminder to participate mm. that Thursday the 10th of February at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time, you know, i.e. Uh, for Sydney uh, or New South Wales, Victoria and, and Tasmania, and all the other times uh, will be displayed on the screen. Click on that now. This is a chance to participate in a Citizens Party event live. Um, we have a, a real intention to get our policies, which are policy solutions, far and wide in this election. Um, we use elections, Elisa, as a way to educate the voting public, right? And this is we want to um, get, start off with a bang with this campaign launch next Thursday night. Yes, so tune in. <clears throat> now, first topic, rip off Morrison's fig leaf for financial crooks. Now, first of all, I have to apologise sincerely for bringing that image to mind uh, of ripping off, off the fig leaf. Of course, we're talking about uh, our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and we're, we're discussing here the Australian Financial Complaints Authority, AFCA, which was um, Morrison's baby, essentially, because he was the Treasurer in 2018 when this came in. Um, 
course, as we discussed last week, he's also was the treasurer who brought you bail in the policy yep. to save the banks by stealing people's savings. Um, now, what we're going to talk about... I don't, I don't think there's been a more shameless servant of the banks as Prime Minister mm. than Scott Morrison. Yeah. And everything we're discussing this week is from uh, an article from the Australian Alert Service from the 26th of January, so a couple of weeks ago. An excellent article put together by researcher Melissa Harrison, so you can contact us for a copy of that. Uh, click on the links below. And we've looked at this, we're looking at this in the context of, of uh, Sterling First and other issues we've raised on here in recent times, just before Christmas, where, for instance, we highlighted the fact there's 200,000 financial victims, Elisa, owed $40 billion um, from managed investment scheme collapses. And they all those cases need to be looked at. The Royal Commissioner said every case needs to be looked at. But who looks at them? This authority. And so yeah. you've got to know how these authorities work. If you're going to know, is the system going to work or isn't it? And frankly, this, what we're about to present, is jaw-dropping in terms mm. of how the system is rigged. Now, the genesis of this body... Um, there was a number of incarnations before AFCA was set up. So after the wave of deregulation through the 1980s and 1990s allowed banks to conduct themselves in a, you know, virtually criminal ways, yep. uh, what was brought into being initially was an external dispute resolution scheme. Now, by the 1990s, as complaints grew, in order to head off real and actual regulation... Uh, what was created and it was set up by the Australian Banking Association was the Banking and Financial Services Ombudsman. And it's just right there is the, is the philosophical, ideological nub of the problem. We have self-regulation in Australia. The industry is allowed to set up their own umpires. Mm -hmm. What a joke. Now, that ombudsman uh, was absorbed into a new financial ombudsman service in 2008. The, the infamous FOS. Every bank victim in Australia for 20 years has learned to hate that name, FOS. Yeah, it was widely discredited. It was slammed for a lack of independence and for callous treatment of victims by numerous um, parliamentary inquiries that we reviewed. Um, but by 2018, that was replaced by AFCA, and AFCA became the one-stop shop that absorbed all the previous bodies and schemes for all financial complaints. Um, but 2018, was that date's crucial because essentially this was part of an effort as the uh, Banking Royal Commission was building up to, to being created. There was a head of steam that was forcing real action on the issue. So this was designed to help to head that off, essentially. And what it is, I mean, what we're about to go through with more detail here is AFCA is the financial complaints system set up by Scott Morrison. I mean, this guy is shameless. This is the guy who voted against the Royal Commission 26 times. When the Royal Commission was on, he says, oh, it hasn't revealed anything we didn't already know. Oh, really? So why'd you vote? You know, where, where have you, where's your action, Scott Morrison? Mm. He said, he, he jumped up and down and said, we've got to make sure it re retains, the, the financial system retains caveat emptor, which means let the buyer beware. We cannot lose that principle. In other words, if you lose your shirt, it's your own fault, right? That's what he said in 2018. And he crafted a response to the Royal Commission that was designed to look like, oh, we're going to take financial complaints seriously. See, it's in the title, Australian Financial Complaints Authority, yet it was intended to do anything but. This is, this is there to be a, a, a breakwater, right? The way a breakwater works is, the, is you've, got, you've got stormy seas, 
right? And you set up a breakwater away from the shore so it takes the power out of those stormy seas before it hits the shore. That's what AFCA is. The shore is the banks. The stormy seas are the hundreds of thousands of victims in Australia and it hits this breakwater and goes nowhere. That's what he deliberately set up. Mm. Listen to the details. Yeah. So a number of parliamentary inquiries documented the industry capture of this setup. Now, first of all, its very first chair was Helen Coonan, who was a Liberal senator and even the assistant treasurer under John Howard. She was a top, top Liberal. I mean, as, as blue blood a Liberal as you get. Mm. And she's in charge of deciding whether financial well, victims yeah. should be looked after. And at the same time as she was the chair, she was concurrently on the JP Morgan, you know, <laughs> one of the biggest banks in the world, its advisory council. She was chair of scandal-wracked uh, Crown Resorts and chair of a PR firm that was representing alleged money launderers. If you, anyone who knows the story of the chaos post the 2008 financial crisis in America and the massive, the massive evictions of all these people, the biggest offender was JP Morgan. It was evicting millions of people from homes it didn't hold the title to, right? And a whistleblower revealed all that. I mean, this is a crooked organisation mm. and they, they chose her to... I mean, there's nothing genuine about the way this government operates when it comes to banks and financial victims. Additionally, nearly 24% of AFCA's ombudsmen came directly from financial services industries. For example, the lead ombudsman for small business was the lawyer who headed Westpac's business lending division. And can I, I'll give you one other predicate, Elisa. Before Christmas, I interviewed a financial victim for our Citizens Insight show, Wayne Ditchburn. And Wayne had a 14-year fight with his bank, right? And he would just, it was a tireless fighter. He wouldn't give up. And he fought them to a standstill and to force them to finally give him some compensation. But in that fight, he got to know all these bank executives that he was constantly harassing on phone calls, etc. When they set up, he got his uh, some compensation. Not enough, but in 2017, he got some compensation. When they set up AFCA and after the Royal Commission, Wayne continues to fight. And he calls up AFCA. Who, do, who answers his call? One of the same executives he used to fight with at his bank oh. for all those years. Oh, my God. Now, remember, it was set up in 2018, but by 2021, <clears throat> there was such, you know, significant issues with this outfit that there had to be a Treasury review. However, as you can imagine, Treasury just cherry-picked certain cases yep. and, you know, absolved them of anything. Now... Our research from various annual reports and so forth shows, um, this is their record, around 50% of complaints were closed at the initial stage. So, in other words, they wouldn't even pick them up. They wouldn't even look into them or pursue them. Only 8% made it to the final stage, that is, reaching some kind of resolution. The majority of cases were marked, quote-unquote, resolved by agreement, i.e. some kind of mediated agreement between the victim and the bank, but there was no indication whatsoever of any level of victim satisfaction provided, no kind of feedback of that kind. Most of the time the victims at that point are given this ultimatum and they don't have the energy to fight anymore. Well, the Small Business and Family Enterprise Ombudsman actually made a statement saying that many small businesses and individuals are simply bullied into submission because... They can't take on the big banks in terms of, you know, the dollars the big banks have to put into court cases, etc. So they accept settlements for that reason. Uh, in 80%, around 80% of cases that did reach the final stage, AFCA ruled in the bank's favour. And that's just a shocking record.
80%. Um, now, AFCAS also has discretionary powers. It can shut down cases that it considers, quote unquote, outside of its jurisdiction, or if that case has already been considered by one of the predecessor organisations that we mentioned earlier that preceded AFCA. So if it's already been considered, we're not going to even look at it again. It also has compensation caps in the very marginal number of cases where it does resolve anything. Um, $1 million for small business, and we're going to look at a case study later um, where a small businessman had estimated $20 million losses, so clearly that won't cut it. And $2 million for primary producers. There's another case of a farmer that we'll discuss who lost up to $12 million. So again, even in the case that it does make a positive ruling for the victim, it, it ain't going to help. It's not going to touch the sides. Bear in mind, these are, these are caps on payouts by banks that earn you know, five to $10 billion in pro annual profits. Mm -hmm. They could pay properly, given that only 2% of the 20% of the 8% get resolved in the favour of the victims, the banks could easily pay full value and they're not even made to do that. Yeah. Now, I want to run through this list, um, which shows how unaccountable AFCA is from all the detailed research. Essentially, AFCA is, it operates as a private company under corporations law. It operates outside of the court system. It does not afford legal protections to victims. It is not bound by rules of evidence. It cannot compel testimony or documents. It is allowed to withhold information it has received. It does not allow appeals to its determinations unless you decide to take it to court, which would be exceptionally rare. And expensive. It is not subject to any kind of oversight. It does not have to appear before Senate estimates. It's not accountable to the parliamentary process. And One Nation Senator Malcolm Roberts has tried to get AFCA. They, they, they just assumed that an organisation like AFCA would come before Senate estimates. They called them and they were told, no, we don't have to come. It's not even subject to freedom of information laws, which is extraordinary. Its decisions cannot be reviewed by the Administrative Appeals Tribunal. Its employees are all immune from liability. It has opposed any additional review mechanisms. Um, in that 2021 re Treasury review that I mentioned, Treasury concurred that it should not be subjected to additional reviews. Uh, it's supposed to report serious crimes to ASIC but complainants report that this does not happen, and we'll note that in the case studies we mention. It's also supposed to report systemic issues to ASIC, but it puts those systemic issues to the bank concerned first and only passes on that issue if the bank affirms that it is definitely systemic in nature. And in its first two years, 78% of those alleged systemic issues were not pursued because the banks obviously said, oh, no. Oh, yeah, and the banks have an excellent track record of owning up, don't they? Oh, yeah, <laughs> as we've seen. Um, so two case studies that we looked at, um, a farmer by the name of Michael Sanderson, these cases have been publicised through uh, the media a little bit, uh, but these people have, you know, taken on a fight. Obviously, there's many, many more that have been affected. But Michael Sanderson took out a Bank of Queensland business loan in 2008, never missed a payment. The Bank of Queensland refused to roll over his loan after the first year, five-year term, which had been an initial part of the arrangement. His property valuation was then manipulated to impose a default clause and his farm was repossessed and he faced $12 million in losses. 
Now, AFCA ruled when they looked at it in the bank's favour, uh, but Michael thoroughly documented AFCA's extreme bias in an extremely detailed rebuttal, pointing out even basic errors of fact. The Small Business Ombudsman reviewed his case, reporting serious issues, but as we mentioned, there is no mechanism for review of AFCA's decision, so, you know, the case just sits there. Uh, another case is Goran Latinovich, a, a finance broker of his family's construction business, siphoned $1.2 million from the company by forging cheques, so just writing out and signing cheques, you know, which the cheques are there as evidence yeah. that he did it and so forth. It's quite clear-cut, open-closed case. However, Westpac refused to recognise the theft despite all the red flags and there was a 15-year battle um, that Goran uh, pursued with $20 million estimated losses. The broker who ripped him off was eventually charged by the police but even after a mediation with Westpac, Westpac disagreed, disagreed with the quote-unquote opinion of the police <laughs> and advised Goran he could go to AFCA if he didn't agree. Just to be clear, Westpac is denying the, 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 uh, the definition charge. of a crime, mm. right? <laughs> that it facilitated the crime, basically, even though the police said this, this is the crime. So Westpac said go to AFCA. So Goran contacts AFCA and he was informed that Westpac had already called them to instruct the case them that the case was outside of their jurisdiction. So Westpac had let them know this is outside of your jurisdiction, you can't go there. AFCA accepted that and refused to take the complaint. And this was Goran's comment. He said, banks are mafia who do things we couldn't even dream of. They are above the law. No one is watching. No one will help victims. Yeah, you can imagine how that call went. You know, Westpac calls up AFCA. AFCA gets on the phone. Yes, Godfather. Mm. Westpac says, uh, AFCA... This is outside your jurisdiction, right? I owe you a favour. Yes, Godfather. And poor old Goran is flushed down the toilet. Um, the, the way that, just even the fact that Westpac makes a call like that. Mm. Oh, yeah. Right? This is, because um, I, I want to mention one story about this, this, the timing of this, 2018 again. This was the, this was the period when people... Long-time viewers of the show will remember we did the campaign last year on Australia Post and what happened to Christine Holgate. Christine Holgate got smashed last in 2020 by Scott Morrison for something she did in 2018 when she uh, forced the banks to do a deal and Scott Morrison had been the treasurer and just became the prime minister and he knew that she was trying to get the banks to do a deal. Why? Because the banks were calling him all the time, personally, that the banks had the treasurer of Australia on speed dial. The CEOs of the banks were saying, this woman's harassing us to do a deal to make us pay more for Australia Post serving our customers, right? And he knew that. And when that's why we, we had a sense that when he monstered her in 2020, um, it was because it was much bigger than the watch. It was, it was because of what she was doing vis-a-vis -vis the banks and wanting to have make, turn Australia Post into a bank, right? Scott Morrison protects the banks. And what you've just gone through, Elisa, is the, the, the mechanism he set up, and these are, these are not exceptions, these are the rules, yep. right? This is the, this is the breakwater um, metaphor I used before. It, what we are doing by highlighting this is we are, we, we are leaving no stone unturned. We are identifying every part of the problem of our corrupted financial system because it's not just that, it, that it's turned Australia into a paradise for white-collar criminals, 
which is the expression that a former head of ASIC actually owned up to, it's because it makes it dysfunctional. We need a financial system that serves the real economy. We need a financial system where the people in charge of the banks and the bank managers, etc., they are making credit decisions where they're saying, how can, how can this loan improve people's lives, improve people's businesses, help create wealth for all? That's not happening. It is, first and foremost, how do we maximise our profits at all costs, at all expense, damn the consequences? And the political part of the system is totally bought off and they facilitate that. And they set up these um, umpiring mechanisms mm -hmm. to look like there's, there's law and order, but it's as crooked as Al Capone owning the Chicago police force. Mm -hmm. Now, all of this stems from a neoliberal paradigm, you know, the so-called bipartisan economic consensus for reform, economic reform, um, which was set in place by foreign agencies we've discussed a lot before on the show, uh, neoliberal think tanks of Austrian economists and um, British and financial Society, elites. Institute of Economic Affairs. Um, and we want to go to our next subject now to discuss another impact of that, which is save our public services. And we're talking here about the destruction of the public service, but of course that is what runs all of our public services from yep. healthcare to, um, you know, basic institutions of government departments that run foreign policy that do everything. You, you don't know. have a you don't have public services without people employed to do all the administration work to deliver those services, right? And I just want to make a comment before you go because for the sake of time, you should go through this in in um, quite a bit of order, um, but. I want to point out, remind people that what you just said about the, neo, the, the reforms that started in the 80s, um, one of the things that people will remember when it comes to the details they're about to listen to is, remember the sort of trite populist arguments they made about why we need to have reforms, why we need to bust the unions, etc. And there were a couple of images that they would talk about with fat cat bureaucrats and lazy bureaucrats and you know, there was the one of the images, the guy on the lollipop at the road construction, right? Some guy paid there just to hold a lollipop mm. all day, right? The lazy council worker. And the other one was a lazy Telstra worker, right? You know, these Telstra, these Telstra technicians, these lazy Telstra technicians, etc. This, this is why we've got to reform the system. We've got to become lean and mean and efficient. And because we um, fell for those kind of trite populist arguments. We accepted a whole reform process that was ideological mm. and that was designed to bust the delivery of services be damned. How can we let our private interests profiteer and capitalise from what should be the delivery of services? And the consequences are grave. Let's mm. go through it. Yeah, so in this week's Australian Alert Service, and again, you can contact us for a copy, uh, we reviewed a a Senate inquiry which took place last year and particularly its report, its final report came out in November last year, headlined APS Inc, which is Australian Public Service Inc, undermining public sector capability and performance. And that report recommended abolishing the cap on the number of public servants, capping the use of external consultants and introducing a regulatory structure to assess, approve and ensure transparency of all outsourcing activity. Now, firstly, on the, the cap, um, abolishing, the abolishment... Abolition. Abolition of the cap. <laughs> well, I should say, no, that's wrong. The cap itself, I should say, 
is heralded was heralded as a key driver leading to the explosion in the first place of external yep. labour hire and consultancies because if you've got a cap on the number of public servants you can bring on to your books and it was a budgetary constraint right it was cut the budget cut the budget and it was but also propaganda because it was like um, I remember all those years decades for decades earlier Every time a new government got elected and they said, oh, we created all these jobs, the, the opposition will say, oh, yeah, you just created a lot more public service positions, mm. right? And um, uh, the, other, the next government will say, oh, we've got to slash the public service, mm. etc." cetera. Um, this way, they put a cap on it. Okay, we're going to cap the number of public servants. Mm. Problem is, there was still work to be done. Yep. Something else happened instead. So they outsource it all to outside jobs. And now, as a result, by population, Australia spends more than any other nation on consulting and we have the fourth largest consulting sector in the world. <coughs> um, and Elisa, a lot of these consulting firms came up with these ideas. Yeah. Right? It's all self-serving. They're the ones that this said, oh, the way to be it. more efficient, outsource your decision-making to us, and we will tell you the way to be more efficient is allow us to outsource even more to us. Yeah, and, and the, the report goes through all this, how you know, the more you outsource to consultants, the more they'll recommend more outsourced consulting work and it just goes on and on in an endless cycle. And you end up gutting the actual public, ser public service of any real expertise. That's right, because you've got people that are on there on a short-term contract, they have to be trained up by the people that are in the public service and then they leave. Yep. And then you've got to train up a whole other round and we'll get to some more of those details. But we'll put up this graph, this shows, you know, quite shockingly, a visual of how... From 2013 to 2020, external contracts increased by around 600%, while public service salaries increased around 10%. That's the bottom line where you yep. see it's quite uh, level. And then the next line up is your consultants and then labour contractors, labour hire contractors above that. And the public service salary is a payment to public servants for the job they do. They get all that money. When you have consultants and labour contractors, then you have a premium on top of that payment yeah. for the profits for the companies yeah. and the actual worker gets less. That's right. It's more expensive. It is not efficient. It's a scam. And it's like we said, it's self-serving. And that's actually pointed out in this final report to their credit. Um, now, 2013, as you see, that's the start point of that graph. And that's significant because that's the year Tony Abbott came to power. And as opposition leader in 2010, he had been bragging, we're going to slash 12,000 public service positions. Well, as we said, it's a bipartisan consensus. And in 2013 to 14 budget, the Labor government beat them to the punch. Wayne Swan announced 14,500 job cuts. Well, they were out by the end of that year. Mm. And in the 2014 to 15 budget, the first Abbott hockey budget, uh, they announced an extra 2,000, bringing it to a total of 16,500 public service job, job cuts. And in a speech, um, speaking to the appropriations on the budget, Hockey said a smaller, less interfering government won't need as many public servants. And that right there, less interfering. See, it's not, le you know, the, the, the person who can help you solve your grand, disabled grandmother's problem with dealing with the NDIS is not an interfering public servant. Mm -hmm. She's there to help you. And these people... Always spent fat cat hockey, you know, married to a big international Deutsche Bank banker, yeah. right, who, who claimed $250 a night in Canberra to live in his wife's house 
right, spins the public service as, oh, they're interfering in your lives. Wake up, people. Mm. Get your head out of this infantile garbage. We swallowed it for too long. The people that tell you these, use these terms are the ones that are picking your pocket. I think people forget, you know, how much this machinery of government, of public service, we rely on every single day. It's not just people that need disability assistance or something. It's every function, you know, you, that goes on. You, these libertarians stop you, and anarchists stop you fantasizing about not having government. There's always going to be government. You may as well just ex- agree with this. Let's make it functional. Mm, exactly. This is deliberately designed to be dysfunctional. And that was the budget, by the way, that Joe Hockey was famously photographed smoking cigars yep. with Matthias Corman. Um, He's a parody of himself, <laughs> that guy. Now, in December of 2013, after Abbott was elected, I just want to mention this by way of background, because he'd called a national commission of audit, and they discussed things like limiting increases in the pension, slowing the rollout of the NDIS health reform, rationalising government bodies, restructuring the public service. The finance ministry's response to that commission of audit talked about essentially gutting government functions at all levels to reduce spending more privatisation, more outsourcing, more quote-unquote efficiency. But this commission of audit was part of a series of royal commissions, commissions of audit, budget reviews since the mid-1970s, which dictated this entire neoliberal agenda. And we've written that up in the past in great detail. And I also wanted to mention that Scott Morrison significantly advanced this agenda One of the very interesting things that he did is that when he came in as Prime Minister, he made himself Minister for Public Services and for nearly three years he held that position. And it was interesting that an article that came out in 2019 in The Australian, we'll put that up, uh, discussed the fact that Morrison was planning to restructure government departments and rebuild all of the government structures around his networks, his friend circles, and there's even an excellent graphic that we can put up uh, where it discussed him building a new power block and a hard-nosed clique of reformers. Um, Remember, they axed four entire government departments, sacked department heads, established new super departments like Peter Dutton's Home Affairs Department, and Dutton was one of the people he worked closely with, um, But one of the things that this article stated is that central to Morrison's strategy has been the purge of the public service. And now, Elisa, they cannot cannot do anything in terms of meeting a crisis situation without calling in the army. It's got to do everything because there is no expertise left after what they've done to the public service. Yeah, look, um, as I mentioned before, and I want to go through some of the examples they've given have given in the report because staff have been forced to train and retrain staff on labour hire contracts only to lose them to other sectors. You've got workforce insecurity. Remember when we found out um, COVID was being spread because all these aged care workers were deployed at all these different facilities, right? Because they're this insecure part-time contract workforce. Um, You had conflicts of interest that were rather extraordinary created by the fact that regulatory agencies were being staffed by the same labour hire firms as the bodies there regulated. And that happened in the case of the Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission. Just just to be clear, so you've got a regulator of aged care and it uses staff that are from a labour hire company, which also provides staff to the aged care companies to provide the actual care. That they're regulating. That they're regulating. I Um, just... 
bonkers. Um, now, so, and I just want to read a couple of the testimonies made during the hearings. This was a staffer from um, the NDIS agency who said, we have had entire teams made entirely of contractors quit and all that skill and knowledge is lost in an instant. I've had to pick up the work of three additional people with no notice. These positions have not been filled almost 12 months later, four labour hire workers coming and going in the meantime. Another NDIS staffer, I have trained eight people in the last 18 months who have all left before they were skilled enough to be useful. We still don't have those positions filled and are about to do it all again. I am facing burnout due to the increased workload and the extra work of training staff who ultimately do not contribute to the team. One of the other shocking examples was various testimony from people working at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Anyone that goes to work there has to study and know inside out three pieces of complex legislation. So they have to have a lot of training. Um, what this has resulted in having to get in labour hire is extended wait times affecting the mental health of our vet veterans. We've all seen the suicide rates. Yep. Um, the trauma of those victims having to retell their story to new case managers because the yep. turnover is so high. And we, now, know, we, we actually know a, a Vietnam vet who uh, is a great guy and he, he spends a lot of his time helping out his fellow vets who are, who are far less functional than him because of mental health problems, etc. And this task, this Herculean task of dealing with the department mm -hmm. is just a nightmare for them all the time. All right, and these people should be treated better than this. Now, the shocking thing is that whilst this report, as I said, called for things like abolishing the cap and a better regulatory arrangement, there's further detail you can read in the article, the, govern the members of the coalition the governing coalition who are on this uh, Senate committee yeah. put out a dissenting report basically saying, look, we designed the reforms, we're going to stick to our reforms, um, we're not budging, we disagree with those you know, recommendations. So the fight continues, we have to take this on. Of course, the question will also be, you know, do the Labor people who and the other crossbenchers who did make these good recommendations, do they follow through? I mean, Labor, it's always the case in opposition that you hear yeah. good things, then they come into government, does it happen? They, yeah, because that neoliberal about? economic consensus is set in stone. And Which, to actually shift that, this is serious. You're we, taking on powerful... But the, 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 the first step is to admit you've got a problem. And I mean, the public admit we've got a problem. We believe their lies for too long. And I've, I've been hearing it again a lot lately. I want government out of my life. That's what they told you. We're going to get government out of your life, etc. No, no, no. They took this entity called government, which is always going to exist. It's needed for services. And they gutted it so that the, um, these interests that did the labour hire companies and the big four accounting firm, global accounting firms and, the, and Boston Consulting and, and McKinsey who do all the, the consulting stuff, they, could, they can just profiteer from um, a, uh, uh, turning government services into total dysfunction and you, you're in, you end up picking up the phone to try and solve a problem with the government Half the time you can't even get onto the department. You get to a call centre because there's no one in the department. You know That's deliberately structured as well. The people who are in the department, who you have been conditioned to criticise as fat cat bureaucrats, they run off their feet right, because of this, this system. And this is, this is the consequence of neoliberalism. We must stop. We must recognise the lies that we fell for and stop doing it. Mm. And, you know, our mission as a political party is to... Um, the only way you reform government 
quote unquote, is to bring the people back, the citizenry yep. back into actually running government. And that's a day to day business that does, doesn't Stay take engaged. place at Always an Always be engaged. And, yep. you know, the committee process is a good example of that. It is. This is an excellent report. This is, you know, shone a light on this. So I think that's pretty much it for this week. Um, Stay tuned. Don't forget to join us next Thursday night yes. for our first live stream. At Click on the link below, set, set the reminder and make sure you're there and have your questions ready. Um, ask, you, you can email them in advance, ask at citizensparty.org.au and let's have a good time launching the Citizens Party's 2022 federal election campaign. Yep, and don't forget to hit the like button and share this video. So thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. And see you next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.